Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Mini Sports. Anything and everything for the classic Mini since 1967. John Gould is a fascinating guy. He has raced, he's collected cars. He says he's never owned an Aston Martin that he liked. He's not that keen on the Gullwing Mercedes SL, but he has had all sorts of cars that he loves. It was great to get him on. It's almost like he's lived three or four different motoring lives. Fascinating guy. My guest today, John Gould. John, I've got a story uh, concerning yourself, and it's a really good story, but I want to try it out on you and see how much truth it contains. Is that okay? Yes, yes, I doubt if it's a good story, but try me. Oh, no, it's a good one. Um, your mother, as, as mothers will sometimes do, questioned what you were doing with yourself and your life, and you replied that you were a racing driver, and she, refu- <coughs> she refused to believe you. So you called Colin Chapman and a vehicle, a very exotic piece of racing machinery, was delivered to, to yourself which you then proceeded to drive through the streets of Brighton (laughs) to visit your mother and said something along the lines of, see, I told you I was a racing driver. And at some point, the police also got involved because driving a Formula One car through the streets of Brighton isn't, even when you did it, wasn't perhaps the sort of thing that people did. It's a great story. How much truth is there in it, John? None. There's an element of truth in that story. The real story is, I, to my everlasting regret, I got up to um, <clears throat> Lotus, to the factory, and uh, I, I think I'm one of the few people who, who caught Colin Chapman on one of his very amenable days. And on the way to his office, he actually spent about half an hour with me and looking at all the photos. Fo- he had, uh, had this sort of corridor with photos of all his drivers in it. <laughs> and uh, uh, he was telling me all about them and recounting all these stories. And I, I was basically, all I wanted was him to say, come and drive for me. So I wasn't really paying as much attention as I should or could have done, and which is a shame. But anyway, be that as it may, my mother had said to me, um, uh, you know, what are you doing and, and how are you doing it and stuff like this. And I persuaded uh, uh, Colin to lend me Gunnar Nilsson's, uh, uh, the John Player Special, the Lotus 72, which was trailered down to Seaford. Uh, Seaford is quite near Brighton. It's where my mum lived. It's kind of the heart of the Costa Geriatrica. It's it's <laughs> halfway between Brighton and Eastbourne. So I'll tell, you an, e- I'll tell you an Eastbourne-related story in just a second, but, yeah. but do proceed. Okay. So will I. I'll tell you a, a car police story in Eastbourne that I'd forgotten about until just now, but I'll, uh, we can get back to that. Anyway, so they unloaded this car, you know, a full current Formula One car on slicks in Seaford in a cul-de-sac called Downsview Road. Anyway, I got in, drove it to the end of the road, did about a 10-point turn and, and rushed it back. 
got out of the car where my mother's only comment was, it's awfully loud, isn't it? <laughs> um, <coughs> and and that, that was all well and good until um, a police car turned the corner, <laughs> having had several phone calls about an explosion. <laughs> and I thought, oh, shit, there goes my license and with it my driving license. I had an international A at the time. And uh, I, I thought, oh, God, what do I say? You know, what excuse is there for, for this? And, and, and they turned up and took their hats off. And the first one said to me, could I sit in it? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, but hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Could he? Could he actually fit into it? Well, just about. He was in uniform. He took his boots off, as I recall. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, frankly, if he'd got in there stark naked, I would have been happy. <laughs> Just provided he didn't ask to see my driving license, which was, he didn't. I was trying to think of the loudest car that I've uh, that I've ever encountered or driven, and of course, um, for a while I was I was I did a little bit of drag racing. I wonder, have you, have you ever been inclined in that direction yourself? No, no. I got quite friendly with um, with a, a chap called Barry Sheevels, who was uh, one of Britain's few, I think at the time he was Britain's only top fuel drag racer. And uh, I persuaded the BBC to come along and cover the drag racing at Santa Pod. And I explained to the cameraman, a South African friend of mine, who I work with quite a lot, I said to him, Keith, I said, just be careful when you're near the car because you, you, you won't have, I'm telling you, friend, you will not have encountered anything like it. And he looked at me disparagingly and said, what are you talking about? You know I've done F1. I said, forget forget the noise and the, and the, and the, the drama of F1. This is on a completely different level. When you get close to a top fuel car, it can cause you to void your bowels. It, that has happened. That has happened to people. Really? I mean, th th well, yeah, these things are kicking out. These things are kicking out north of ten thousand horsepower, and running on ni nitro methane. Which, when you get close to a car that's idling, that isn't blasting down the strip, it's ejecting. S the, the, what it what it's kicking out through the open headers is so toxic. It feels like some sort of some sort of crowd dispersal gas. It's like tear gas. It's horrific. And uh, afterwards, he said to me, listen, I'm sorry. He said, I had no idea. He said, I thought I was going to sew my trousers when he started that thing up. <laughs> and I said, well, I did warn you. But uh, what's yeah. the, was that Lotus the, loud, the loudest? And most, what was the most dramatic car that you, you've owned, John? Gosh. The one, I, that stopped, think... the one that stopped people in their tracks. The one that always stopped everyone and got everyone taking a photo and laughing their socks off and asking me if they could get in and out of it and so on is, uh, funnily enough, not a loud, loud car, but it was an old Rolls Phantom 3, Sedanka Deville I had, which rejoiced in the number plate. The original number plate was KUM1. Right. Which, of course, <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> Really, I suppose it, when it, 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 I suppose when it was issued by by the uh, the authorities, it, it was it wasn't it wasn't thought of as even vaguely smutty. But obviously, does that number still exist? It, You've not still got it, have you? Yeah, no, no, I've sold the car with the number, of course, right. 
And uh, actually, we made a funny poster at one stage with my youngest daughter uh, and my stepson and my youngest daughter looking really pissed off because, um, uh, which she was at the time, she was dressed in a sort of bride's outfit and pretending to fix the car. And my stepson and I were drinking champagne next to it. And it's labelled late for the reception. Ah. And uh, quite a popular poster at one time. And it gave us a good laugh. What was the story of that car? Because cars like that often have a very interesting backstory. I would imagine you weren't the only notable owner of that car. Well, no. it, it, It used to belong to James Robertson Justice, who was the... The senior doctor in the doctor, right. uh, the so, uh, doctor films. So presumably, so, that was the car that you would see in the in the special parking spot right outside the entrance the, in the doctor films. Was that the, the same one, yeah. car? Yeah, that's the same car. Right. It, it, it was a lovely old beast too. I, I, I still miss it, but you know, I don't live in England anymore. So there you go. I am um, everything. Can you? I. I once um, went for a drive with a chap from Manchester called Lawrence Millet who ran it. Lawrence is often mentioned on this show because he had a formative um, influence in my interest in cars and way before I knew him because he ran a luxury performance prestige car showroom in Manchester back in the day when you really didn't see cars like that unless you saw George Best in his E-Type or uh, Graham Nash from the Hollies, sort of in his in his Lotus or something. You didn't see cars like that in Manchester, except in the window of Bauer Millet in, uh, of Manchester. They had a showroom on Peter Street, right in the centre of the city, just off Deansgate, the main drag, Manchester's Oxford Street, if you will. And I used to get the 35 bus into Manchester from Berry or cycle on my Rally Arena uh, 10 speed into Manchester, just to look in the window. And 15 years later, I actually knew Lawrence well enough for him to say, would you like to... Co-? He used to talk out of the corner of his mouth. He used to talk like that. A bit sort of W.C. Fields. He's a very dapper guy. He's a very charismatic guy. And I think that was part of the appeal of going, going into the showroom to see him. And he always had amazing, interesting cars. But he ended up acquiring a Cloud 3, a Rolls a Cloud 3, that rumour had it was a cancelled order from the Sultan of Brunei. All I know that it was a brand new Cloud 3 made 35, 40 years after they made the last one. It was a new car that was made by Rolls-Royce after the old one. Allegedly for the Sultan of Brunei, who because of a little local difficulty, as Lawrence described it, had had to cancel his order. Lawrence had acquired this Cloud 3, which was pillar box red, a pillar box red cloud three with a white leather interior. And that car, John, literally, we took it to Lime Park, just outside Manchester, which people would know from Pride and Prejudice. That's where Colin Firth, a.k.a. Mr. Darcy, ends up emerging from the from the lake, Disley, uh, just right. outside Manchester. We took it down to there for a drive. And people were literally stopping their car and getting out of their car to take a picture of it. It I said to Lawrence, it's literally stopping traffic because it was such a big car. Um, As you'd know, most cars of that ilk are reserved colours. They're kind of, they're silver, they're black, they're kind of dark grey. This one was fire engine red. 
and it just <laughs> it just looked like a million dollars. Yeah, I've, I, you're reminding me of cars as we speak, and I'll go back to, I mean, I started with absolutely not a penny, but I'll tell you about that later. But well, didn't, didn't, bought, hold on a sec, didn't you, on. didn't you, weren't you brought up, I'm told you were brought up in Africa, is that, is, is that the case? Yeah, I, w- I was born in Tanzania, born and raised there, my first language was Swahili. Wow. I... I got a smattering of German, which was useful later, and, of course, I learned English. So I was going to uh, say, I mean, my my uh, partner, who gets again gets mentioned, she gets mentioned more than me on this show, she was brought up in Zambia, uh, you know, part of that, a father Scottish, part of that diaspora where Scots got sent all around the world to run various concerns where, you know, you needed to know what you were doing. So mm-hmm. a father ran one of the biggest mines in Africa, in Zambia. And in terms of cars, she said, we had a Fiat, we had this sort of broken down old Fiat and the starter motor didn't work, but it was okay because everywhere, she said, everywhere we went, there was always a crowd of people who wanted to push start the car, not because they were, <laughs> not because they were trying to get money. Like she, she had to explain to me, I said, oh, so they could get, so you'd pay them. She said, no, no, they just wanted to touch a motor car and be kind of helped to start. They got a thrill out yeah. of it. And I said, really? She said, yeah. yeah the, it was the, like that. I yeah. mean, back then, I, I was born in 49, but my dad had a, a, a standard Vanguard, which, you know, the old two-litre Triumph engine, which was indestructible. Uh, it was used in, well, yeah, it was used in tractors and f- it, was, it was used as yeah. a pump engine and all sorts. It was a, it was a right. universal, yeah. and like you say, unbustable. Bomb-proof cars, bloody brilliant things. So, we so, were born near a mine, actually, called Williamson's Diamond Mines, and he saved my younger sister's life because in those days, you know, our mother had one kid that lived, two that died, one that lived, two that... So my sisters and I, were we got two years between us because so many died, uh, 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 which is... It was a very tough life out there then, uh, but... The owner of Williamson's Diamond Mines actually flew in the first ever oxygen tent to Africa, and uh, uh, it saved my mother's and my younger sister's life. Wow. Which was uh, rather nice, but uh, she was taken there in the standard Vanguard. And is, and, and is that standard Vanguard the car that got you, that started off your lifelong interest in cars? I, I started with a standard eight. <laughs> When, uh, like I said, I was fundamentally potless, but I always wanted a British racing green car. The standard cost me the princely sum of eight pounds. And I went to Woolies and bought a tin of green gloss paint and hand painted it. It took me most of the day. Uh, I sold it for 55 quid, actually, because it looked a lot smarter. That got me a split screen Morris 1000 convertible. Sold that, got a nicer Morris 1000 convertible. Learned about getting rid of dents by using polyfiller, would you believe? <laughs> painted that, hand-painted it black. And that led eventually to an Aston Martin DB24. That's quite a leap. <laughs> yeah. And the Aston I swapped in a pub in Ireland for a ruin and some land on the coast of the Ring of Kerry, and I've still got it. Not the Aston, the Ruin. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I think that's one of the best swap stories I've ever heard. You got <laughs> it was a... many swaps, yeah. And uh, it's right next, well, right next, it's a short drive away from the best pub in the world called the Blind Piper. 
Well, run I think by you'll... a couple of beautiful sisters. Fantastic. Yeah, I think you'll find that the best pub in the world is the New Oxford in Salford. Just no, uh, it, no. it, well, well, we, we all, we all. Well, George Orwell said it was the moon underwater, and and uh, oh. and so I, th- I think we should uh, perhaps perhaps leave it at that and get get back to cars. Were you back no, in I the? Think should, I think we should have a challenge to check which is the best pub actually before you chicken out of that one. <laughs> well, what do you, okay? What what do you think makes a pub a great pub? Um. Let me tell you about the first time I went in this pub when I I uh, uh, sat down for a Sunday meal and this bloke staggered out of the bog and said, you're the feckin' English that swapped that car for the ruin. And I thought, oh, no, don't want to fight. You know. And I said, uh, yeah, that's me. You better join us in the other bar where they were having a spectacularly Irish afternoon betting on the horses. In those days, it was the punt. And you put a bet down, and if you won, you had to buy the entire pub a drink. So if you won, you lost. <laughs> oh, if you won, you lost. How very Irish, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, about midnight, I had to ask for help to get to my car because I'd lost the use of my legs. And uh, I, I said, look, you know, is it a problem with the guard? And they said, no, that's him there you've been drying, bring, buying drinks for all night. Yeah, I had, um, a, I had a similar experience on Shetland where I'm saying, well, how are we going to get back? We can't drive. And they said, see that guy there? <laughs> I mean, I'm not right. Neither of us is recommending drink driving. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Oh. But back in the day, and especially in rural communities, there would be a very laissez-faire attitude towards that sort of thing. Well, it was very different then, and, yeah. and uh, there was much less on the road. And nowadays, no, you'd be—I I, I, I strongly disagree with anyone drinking and driving. Well, mind you, did you hear the story about Chris Amon? You know, the ex-Ferrari driver who was stopped in London back in the day, and uh, by the police, uh, you know, uh, because he was driving erratically, wound the window down. And the policeman said, "I think you've drunk too much, sir." Drive more carefully. Wow. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, right, we, as, as ever, this programme strays into the... This show strays oh, into yeah. uh, politically Sorry. incorrect territory. But, no, here's the thing, John. What we mustn't do, I think, and I think I'm with our serving Prime Minister um, with that, who used to be a motoring correspondent. People forget that. Boris Johnson used to road test cars for, I think, GQ for a long time, like for a few years. I remember because I, I a car came to me late because Boris had forgotten where he parked it, so they couldn't retrieve it until he remembered where it was. <laughs> and here's, here's a name drop story. Apparently, it was outside Stephen Fry's house, and he'd forgotten that he'd left it there. I don't. I, I always thought Mr. Fry was a bit more to the left, but uh, I suppose when you like, <laughs> I suppose when you like that, you could. You could yeah. When you're part of that well, set, you can well, put aside petty differences. Yeah, he obviously left it behind. So you've got very good. You've you've been deprived. You've got a ruin, but now you haven't got an Aston Martin. So uh, you've got to get yourself a car. What did What did you get then? Oh God, I I, I think I've had them all. There was, uh, later on in life, when I'd made a few quid, uh, I, I, I was into Mercedes, and I had a, a fine time. I went to America because I like the 300SL Mercedes. I started in Dallas, where I bought a 300S convertible, and then I bought a Gullwing, 
And then I went to uh, L.A., where I bought a 300 uh, SL uh, of a doctor who's actually it was very nice because he wasn't there. His daughter met me and she was a very friendly Californian girl, as I remember. I bought the car and left the next morning, drove it up to Dallas and shipped them all back to where I was living in Germany. Um, and the most expensive of the three at the time was $55,000, which I kept him. Wow. <laughs> uh, was this, so was this, and again, if anybody listens to this show regularly, you'll know that we often discuss the time when cars, which are now iconic, were unloved and cheap to buy. It happened. It happened to almost any iconic car you can think of, whether it's a Gullwing or a Ferrari Dino or a, an early uh, an early 911. At one point, people just looked at them and thought, "What's that old bit of nonsense?" They weren't they weren't as venerated as they are now. I, I, and I mean, that time's gone. Do you, do you, would you agree with me? That time when cars have a period where they're they're un- whether it's Aston Martin DB5s, E-Types, Mini Cooper S's, whatever, people just look at it and think, oh, an old car. Very much so. And, and uh, I mean, I, I was an enthusiast, still am really, but uh, uh, these days the prices are, are, are unaffordable really if you, if you just want them for the love of it. But uh, I was changing cars all the time. I mean, you mentioned Aston Martins, and I never had a good Aston. I, I had all of them. Uh, and, and I never enjoyed any of them. They were Ooh. too heavy and uh, uh, just not fun to drive, really. Well, I think, you know, the yeah, the DB5 has become iconic because of James Bond. Yeah. If you drive it back-to-back against one of its contemporaries, an E-Type Jaguar, I don't understand why anyone would have bought the Aston other than because its price meant that it it guaranteed exclusivity. Whereas the E-Type was a, a mass-produced car, the Aston was hand-built, but as a car, the E-Type was far superior. Yeah, and beautiful. It's one of the all-time most beautiful... There's no angle that an E-Type doesn't look beautiful, especially the early fixed heads. I say there were no, there were no posh cars um, when I was growing up in, in post-industrial North Manchester cobbled streets and terraced houses and, you know, a Vauxhall Viva GT was considered exotic. There were two cars. There was, uh, we've talked about, I've talked about these before, Dr. Pearson's um, DB5, Silver Birch, just like the the one in the movie. And he was a very cool guy as well. Um, He operated on me three times, (laughs) two motorcycle related. Um, And there was Mr. Monkhouse who had an insurance company and he had a red E-type Jaguar. And even though it was one of the later ones and it was an automatic and a V12, and I know those cars are unloved, it was still an E-Type Jaguar and it's still in a landscape full of Vauxhall Chevettes and Hillman Hunters and Austin Allegros. It looked like a spaceship compared to them. It's all about, yeah. it's, it's, it's about what you're used to, isn't it? You know, if you're that, used that, if you're used to Dad's Mini Countryman, and you see a red E-type go past, it just looks so exotic and glamorous. What's the most glamorous car you've owned? Some glamorous cars, John. What's the most glamorous car you've owned? Yeah, 
I, I will say one thing about the E-Type you mentioned. The, the, the V12 automatic was the nicest of the bunch to drive. I mean, these days, cars are lovely and comfy and everything works and windows go up and down. Uh, back then, they didn't. But the E-Type was the most stunning looking car. Mm. And cars grow, cars throughout their life, uh, their manufacturing life, they age with their owners. So the young buck who bought an E-Type in 64, by 74, he might actually need a couple of uh, plus two seats in the back for the kids and a bit of room for all of the guff that goes with them. And he might not be as keen at, in his 40s as he at changing gear himself as he was in his in his 30s. You know, the, the Corvette, the same. And, and cars, are, Mercedes SL, the same. The cars get heavier, they get more luxurious, they, they have more features, less sporting... And, and, and young car journalists, if they still exist, will write scathingly and say, oh, the later ones were too heavy and they were laden down, and the, the first ones, the pure ones, and you think, yeah, well, you think that now, but give it 10, 20 yeah. years' time, and you might actually yeah. like nice carpets and a, and a decent stereo and electric windows and all those things. They forget that at the end of the day... It's a business. They're trying to sell the cars. They're trying to second-guess what the public wants, and, and, and they want to they be successful. And there's, there's a lot of competition. Yeah. Well, I mean, I sold my last Healy, big Healy, because uh, if I drove it to Brighton and back from, from uh, uh, my place in Sussex, time I got out, I, I was nearly crippled because, you know, I'm 70 now, and... and Everything hurts, you know. <laughs> and you, you drive a Healy, and it's bloody painful. And, you know, you're bouncing and crashing. Oh, lovely cars. What a great car. Drive, but, what a great you know, car. But, which, is but, your fa- which is your favourite? I, like, I really like the 106. I, I know, yeah, you know, of, of yeah. those big Healy's. I just think it's got... It's got the perfect... I know it's in the middle between the 3 litre and the, and, the, and the 104, but it's got... For me, it's got the balance of looks and performance absolutely bang on. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And by the time it got to the uh, uh, Mark III Healy, it had got the um, uh, the wind-up windows. It was it was fine if you're a short ass, but I'm fairly <laughs> tall. <coughs> and uh, uh, the 106 had the better engine than the 104. It had the leg room of the 3000 Mark I and Mark to a but uh, and it was just a lovely thing to drive 2.7 liter engine with lo- lovely it was a lovely car you could just it, it's certainly the best of the big heelys i've had i've yeah, had them all for most driving you could just stick it in like second and just <laughs> just it was almost an automatic it's so smooth so talky i Ooh. the first time i drove one of those it was on a comparison day at Bicester, at Bicester Heritage, and we had a load of cars from that era to drive, and it was so revealing to drive them against the MG, to drive it against the MG and the Triumph, and I came away just really thinking that the, the Healy, the 106, was a was a great car, and again, as you say with the E-Type, I don't think it had a bad angle. Maybe it was a bit slab-sided, completely side-on. But apart from that, you know, you, never, never have I felt, and I know I don't sound like him, but never have I felt more like Cary Grant 
than when I was... Do you know what I mean, John? Than when I was yeah, driving 106. I, I yeah. thought, the only thing that's missing is, like, Grace Kelly or, or you know, the, the equivalent sat next to me in fantastic sunglasses with a with a headscarf on. And, and rather than going round a, a bit of a test track on an old RAF base in Oxfordshire, we could be popping down to Cap for that for lunch or something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the Healy and the E-Type, you put those two cars together and maybe a three-litre Bentley next to them. And have there ever been three cars that are more jaw-dropping for any bloke who actually has blood in his veins? There's a theme there, John. <laughs> they're, all, they're all British cars. And, and really, yeah. when I think about it, we've only really talked in the last half hour, about British cars. Is that a conscious thing with you? Or I mean, it was with my grandfather. Again, I've, I've spoken about it. My grandfather, my mother's father, John Moore, he was a, a real motoring enthusiast, uh, but he wouldn't countenance anything that wasn't manufactured within these aisles. He just, it just, you know, he was born in 1900, the last year of Victoria's reign, and he was almost a Victorian, and he wouldn't, he just, he just thought British was best, that was it. And he liked he, he liked Triumphs and he liked Rileys, but he was a Jaguar man to the core, you know. And he simply yeah. he simply would. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that, that that's why you love British cars so much, but uh, he simply wouldn't have have owned a foreign car. It would have been the very idea. He would have gone and got his service revolver out of his desk if you <laughs> if you had said to him if you had said to him, you know what you oh no we have talked about Mercedes. If he'd said to him if he'd said to, you'd said to him, you, you want a Mercedes, John? He <laughs> would have got to go his gun, yeah. you know. But obviously, yeah. obviously, that's not the case with yourself because we have, as I almost forgot, talked about Mercedes. Uh, yes, I, I've had a few, Max, but and, and I like Yank tanks. I really do, provided you don't have to turn a corner ever. There's nothing comfier, and, and at least the hoods tend to work, unlike the British cars. So, right, well, here's, you know. how, here's how we get into that story. I'm at my favourite car event in the world, the Rally of the Giants at Nebworth, which we, Nebworth House, we might mention again for different reasons yeah. in, a, in a few minutes. And I'm looking at this car, and it's a, a very dark blue, almost black, and I'm looking at the car and I'm thinking, where do I know this car from? And this chap materialises at my elbow and says... Um, you know the car, don't you? You're thinking where you... I said, yeah, I'm trying to think where I know the car from. And he said, do you like the band Led Zeppelin? And I said, yes, I very much like the band Led Zeppelin. They are, in my opinion, the greatest rock and roll band of all time. And then he didn't even have to... He just looked at me and I thought, this is the car from The Song Remains the Same. This is the PSRO that's in the movie right at the start. He said, yes. Would you like to drive it? And I was like, of course I'd like to drive it. You own that car, yeah. John. You own that car, no, yeah? No, I never owned it. I owned the other Pierce Arrow that right. belonged to Peter Grant. Uh, that, that Pierce Arrow, I, I used to, uh, Peter's cars used to be kept at my farm in Sussex because we were near neighbours. There's a long story behind how I met Peter, which is motor racing, and I'll tell you in a minute. But uh, that, that blue car, actually, when we cleaned it out at the farm, uh, one day, because we had nothing better to do, and Peter was sitting. As we cleaned it out, we actually found one of the bullet cases from from uh, uh, from that filming day. Would you believe? Wow! Did you keep it? 
uh, when he died, the cars were sold, and I kept uh, the convertible Pierce Arrow. I, I bought it and and kept it, and uh, had it until not that long ago. I had a bad accident and mullered my foot, and I can't drive manual cars anymore. But uh, 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 the the convertible Pierce was just uh, that was a showstopper. I kept it at mm. my place in France, and uh, uh, it, it was just incredible there. I wonder if people know the story of Pierce Arrow because it's so interesting. I I tried to think of a European mark that they would be equivalent to and I think uh, not Bentley, not Bentley, Lagonda. Lagonda, would you say, John? Well, the Pierces were bigger and heavier but they had the lovely straight eight engine. I mean, an all-time classic engine, I think, but... uh, I would say the Lagonda engine was a better one. The cars were a damn sight sportier mm. and probably lighter and easier to drive. So it, I, I tell you about that, that, that Pierce you were mentioning. One, one day, uh, Peter and I were always messing around with the cars, and uh, uh, he knew someone who uh, uh, was getting married. And uh, he, he said to me, um, uh, would you mind driving one of them and I'll drive the other and we'll go and do um, uh, 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 this wedding? And I said, well, yeah, sounds like fun, you know. So we did. And afterwards, someone who didn't have a clue who he was or that he owned the cars came up and gave us both a big fat tip. <laughs> Peter said to me, easiest money I've made since we toured America. <laughs> we should explain that the PSRO is a is a, a luxury car, super luxury, up there with a Hispano or a Bugatti or a, a Rolls yeah. Royce, uh, yeah. built in America. He had, he had a Hispano at the same time, and that that was something else. I mean, that was like a, a floating boudoir on wheels. I'll tell you my favourite Led Zeppelin car-related story, and it's not apart from that one, and it's not going to be nearly as interesting or exotic as the ones that you have to tell. But but let's see. I'm driving around Europe in an Austin 16, a 1947 Austin 16. We'd set off, me and my pal Guy, who's been a guest on this show, from Oslo at 9am, 70 years to the second, after Austin had done it themselves to, to, as a publicity stunt. They were flagged off at 9am from the main square in Oslo as the, as the clock struck nine by the president of the Norwegian RAC, and so were we exactly 70 years later. So we had to do 500 miles a day to cover the 3,000 miles to Geneva. It isn't 3,000 miles from Oslo to Geneva, but it is if you go via the main capitals, Stockholm, Brussels, Paris, etc., which they had done because it was a publicity stunt, and so that's what we did. So it got a bit dull being in the car for sort of 11 hours a day, 12 hours a day, over the week that we did it. So I was reading, I was reading a book about Led Zeppelin, and I turned, I got to the middle of the book, which is where the photographs are, and there's pictures of Peter Grant and Richard Coles and Jimmy Page and the band and all that sort of stuff. I turn over the page, there's a picture of Robert Plant sat on the bonnet of an Austin 16. And it's the same model of Austin 16, the one that was only made for a couple of years because it was a pre-war design being made after the war. The same, the same car, the same model. I was absolutely flabbergasted. You, you wouldn't be able to tell me anything about that car, would you, John? <laughs> no, I... Uh, no, that, it's not ringing any bells. I was going to say, maybe that would be a coincidence too far, but you can imagine, I'm sat in an Austin 16. There is 
Robert Plant sat on the bonnet of the same car. I said to Guy, who was driving, I said, look at that, look. And he was like, you know, it's, it's, where do you think that interest in, I, I have my own theory about it, but that very passionate interest that rock stars and the rock community, if you will, had with cars. Because you think of all of that great group, whether it's the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, all those guys, those those iconic British rockers, they all loved cars and motorcycles. Almost all of them. I think it's because they're blokes. And, and we all are. And uh, uh, the, the, the problem is, can you afford... Uh, you know, the difference between a man and a boy is the price of his toys, isn't it? And, yeah, but uh, I, d- uh, I don't necessarily agree with you, John, because I think I've, I've met and interviewed a lot of people, and in the sort of artistic community, if you will, I would often meet writers, actors, film directors, who not only had no interest in cars, couldn't drive, couldn't drive a car. Uh, but those old rockers, and I have I spent 10 years uh, presenting a breakfast show on a classic rock radio station here in Manchester. And so I met all of them, Townsend, Jimmy Page, Tony Iommi, Brian May, all those guys, all. And because I'd done my 10 years stint on Top Gear, I'd get them in the studio, and they'd want to ask me about cars. They want to talk to me. About, I'm trying to talk about the new album or the tour, and they'd be saying, what's the best car? Do you like, what about those early 911s? Do you think they're going to go up even more? I'd be like, oh, no, they're, they're all into cars. And you think of the sort of iconic car-related stuff that they got up to, probably most famously Keith Moon with, I think, what is now agreed to be a Lincoln Continental that he actually, not a Rolls-Royce, that he actually drove into a swimming pool. Yeah, well, we've all done that, haven't we? <laughs> no, John, we haven't all done it. Go on, have you done it? Have you done it? Just the once. Oh, the come once on, you've not. Have you? I was, I was banned from ever renting another car in the States after that because I phoned the rental company and complained that I thought there was water in the carburetor. I was also flung out of the hotel, by the way. Now, don't be kidding us. You actually did it. Right, I want to know yeah. what kind of car it was and where it happened, uh, or as I much information. Remember. It was whichever rental car I'd, I'd, I'd rented, and it was in Denver, Colorado, and I opened <laughs> the windows before <laughs> I shot across, across yeah. the poolside and into the pool with a couple of stupid friends cheering me on and bailed out of the window as it sank. Again, nowadays, uh, you know, I, I'm quite keen on the environment, uh, I, I, I look back on that with an element of shame, I have to say. Well, but I, at the time, it was bloody funny. Well, I salute you, sir. Never, <laughs> never mind, never mind yeah, the, the shame. Other, the other thing we used to do then, which is if you came up, you know, back in the old motor racing days, if you came up behind some, you know, competitor who you recognised, stopped at a red light, if you could creep up quietly in your car and get it bumper to bumper, and then uh, drop the clutch, and, and uh, they're usually automatics, and just push him into the oncoming traffic. We used to think that was quite <laughs> funny, too. Yeah, well, we, 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 we all did stuff like that. Maybe not as much as you. You're, you're the first person that I've met, because, of course, I never met Keith Moon. He, he sadly moved on um, before I started getting access to, to those sorts of people. But, you know, I'm thinking about... Um, I met Sid Barrett's ex-girlfriend at a thing at the Chelsea Arts Club. 
And I said to her, I have to tell you that my favourite photograph of a rock star in a car is the picture of Sid on the bonnet of a Pontiac Parisian somewhere in the streets. Oh, yes. Yeah, do you, know, one. do you know the picture? Yeah. Do you know that picture? It's got a very short registration as well. It's got like a three-digit registration. It's British registration, so I know it was in London. And I, I said I always wanted to know whether he owned the car or whether the photographer said, just lie on that car, Sid, and we'll get a really good, a really good picture. Said, yeah. And she said, no, no, he owned the car. It was, it was his car. And it's amazing when you can, you know, so again, I, you know, I say it to you because I know that you've been involved with the music business and you've, you, you've known some of the sort of the icons of British music, uh, not just sort of, you know, passing figures, but some of, the, some of the giants. And they all seem to have that interest in cars. Even Charlie Watts, who I am led to believe from the manager of his, uh, of his stud down in Somerset, has an interest in cars even though he doesn't drive <laughs> and, and owns, I think a, a few Lagondas, which he just likes to look at and sit in, but he can't actually drive a car. I, I, I don't know whether he can drive or not. I've, I only met him once actually at a studio in London and I, 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 I spent a wasted afternoon and evening with the Stones. But, right, when you but, say uh, when you say wasted, John, <laughs> do you do you mean that it was a waste of time, or you all got wasted? Uh, I I I was never a drinker, and I I, 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 I certainly didn't do drugs. I, I never even smoked the anti god cigarettes. Um, <clears throat> so I have a lot of memories that really should be published, but. You're the, guy, you're the guy. You're the guy. You're the guy who can remember it. You you might yes. be the only guy that can remember it because everyone so else. Told by, by many people who've said, "Wait until I'm dead before <laughs> I tell it." <laughs> I was at those parties that went on for an awfully long time, and I remember. And uh, uh, yes, I, I know a lot of stories, but uh, some of them quite fun too. Yeah, but maybe not. Maybe not to be told on what is ostensibly. It's not really a car show. It's the, like anything. It's to do with. It's about people and their relationship with with vehicles. But we'd kind of got you to a point where you were involved with road cars, nice road cars, up to the Aston Martins. Even though you said you never owned a good one, motor racing and the music scene. So you must have, how, how much sleep were you getting at that time? You can't have been getting much if you're doing all of that. No, no, I was dead serious about my motor racing. I mean, for seven years, I hardly touched a, a drink. I mean, I, I had to because I, I started with, I mean, I drove to Germany determined to make a, a living out of it in a knackered old Triumph Herald convertible. And uh, uh, it, it I mean, I got a job in Germany teaching in a grammar school for a year, and uh, I figured that that would get me enough money to buy a Formula Ford, which is what happened. But, I mean, I got there so broke. The last three days before my first paycheck, I had three slices of bread and water out of the tap. That's how I started motor racing. Mm. But, uh, uh, if, I mean, I got a job in an evening school as well, uh, learned to speak German, uh, had a bit from Africa, and uh, bought my Alexis Formula Ford. And uh, because I was a school teacher, I was able. I went to the Deutsche Bank manager and said, "Look, you know, I'm a respectable teacher. I need a respectable car. I need a loan," which he granted me, and that paid. <laughs> 
for a tow car, a trailer, and a Formula Ford, and I then left in a hurry. I did pay the bank back, I hasten to add, some years later. But uh, I then bummed Europe and, and, and had a great time and uh, got into historic racing and did quite well uh, doing that and driving saloon cars. Um, came over to my first ever race in England was with my, my German teammate driving for a German team in a Ford Escort RS2000 in the Dolomite area. Wow. When we, we raced at Thruxton. And uh, uh, it was won by Andy Rouse, as I recall. Oh, anyway, I, thought, Dolomite. I assumed that you were going to say it was won by Jerry Marshall, if it, if it, if it was that era. But, yeah, Andy, Andy Rouse. Uh, yeah. And I think Andy Rouse is, as some claim to be, uh, the most successful saloon car racer in British motor racing history. Although I think Jason Plato, Plato might be snapping at his heels now. But was there, was there much was there much money to be earned back then? I mean, a lot of a lot of like a lot of sport motor racing really suffered. And again, we're we're talking about stuff that probably wouldn't be talked about elsewhere because it's considered to be politically incorrect and a subject to be avoided. The tobacco advertising ban had a huge effect on motorsport, didn't it? It did. Because oh, before we, that, we made, before that, there was mon- there was money. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I made a living. I'll tell you about it in a moment. That, that Thruxton race, we made enough money to party for a fortnight in London. Wow. And we got a really good report from Dennis Jenkinson because we're the only car that had driven on the road there because we couldn't afford a trailer and a tow car. And we drove back to Germany. And as I recall, we got to our local hostelry with one Deutschmark. <laughs> <laughs> and we swapped the cup we'd won at Thruxton for a night's partying. Well, I can only offer the anecdote where I sold my uh, leather jacket to the bouncers at a exotic dancing establishment in Detroit, so that me and my me and my colleagues could remain there for a couple more hours. <laughs> One of them had admired it on the way in, and I'd been given it. It was a freebie that I got on a motorcycle uh, motorcycle lodge. So when we realised we'd run out of money, I went back and sold it to the bouncer, and it, it kept us in there for, for another couple, another couple of hours. But these are the th- these are the things that you do. So what was what would you have, what would you look back on as the sort of pinnacle of your of your racing career? When do you think? That was a great day. It never got better than that. The best race I ever had was at Zolder in Belgium, which uh, 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 it, it was one of those extraordinary occasions where uh, I, I managed to rent a little house in the middle of a circuit and, uh, uh, you know, walking around talking to people, I... I I met a group of people, and three of them had nowhere to keep that night. They hadn't organized anything. And I said, well, you know, there's room in this house. You're welcome to stay. And uh, I think it was a unique experience. I, I don't know if this ever happened before with those three people who were uh, David Piper, Jack Villeneuve, and Sterling Moss. Wow. <laughs> and it was, it was very near the place where poor old Villeneuve actually died uh, mm. a couple of years later. But that, that that was one of those races where uh, I, I was watching the Grand Prix last weekend where Hamilton said he got into this zone. It's the only time it ever happened to me that 
I was driving outside of the car. It was the weirdest experience where I didn't need to to consciously be quick. I just was. And I was I was kind of going round the corner ahead of me before I got to the corner. It was the most surreal experience. It was, uh, I, 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 I don't know, it's the only out-of-body experience I've ever had, really. Well, do you know who said that to me? Ari Vatanen, the Finnish rallying legend, the poet of rallying, yeah, who I yeah. believe is now a successful politician. And he said to me, he, he said to me, Steve, do not think, just be. Don't think, mm. just be. And it's all that's almost like what you're saying, isn't it? You kind of you're not you're not having to make any kind of effort. It's it's as though it's a kind of like almost uh, uh, it's never happened to me. I have to be honest, an out of body experience. Well, it's not happened to me yeah. in a racing car anyway. But uh, yeah. it's it's like running, isn't it? Any sport, you can reach a level where you can kind of transcend what you're you're really good at and become something super special. But, I mean, most of the time I was worrying and thinking, where the hell's the next meal coming from? <laughs> but uh, that's the one time it happened, and that was amazing, and that was in Belgium. So how do you get involved with with the likes of Led Zeppelin? How does how does that happen? Was that, I mean, obviously people know there's a crossover with people like George Harrison and motor racing. Obviously he had a great interest and was kind of, a lot of people say he was... The, fi- the guy in the shadows who was pushing Damon Hill forward in his career. Uh, I don't know how, how much truth there is in that. But how how did you get involved in that world, in the sort of rock world? Well, actually, well, I mean, there's a lot of contact between uh, the rock music world and, and, and the motor racing world. And I think it's because they're both sort of, uh, they tend to be very blokey uh, uh, environments. Um, but uh, my uh, my head mechanic at the time was a bloke called Robin Lavender, who was a brilliant, brilliant mechanic and engine builder. I mean, really great. And uh, uh, I mean, they protested us once at a race. I think it was the Nürburgring where I, I, I'd won the race. I think I'd, I'd lapped everybody. And uh, uh, the RAC took the engine apart. And uh, it was found to be correct, but they actually... Uh, uh, said to us they'd never seen a better built engine. I mean, these days, everybody does that. But in those days, Robin was, you know, uh, and you could never go near the car uh, when he was, uh, you know, if you're in the pits and getting ready for a race and anyone who came up would just be told to fuck off, including me. And I was driving the bloody thing. Um, (laughs) The last thing you want is the driver coming near it when you're doing important work bothering you. (laughs) Well, yes. And and Robin's wife was Peter Grant's housekeeper. Right. And uh, 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 they they both said, look, you guys ought to meet because you're both a little bit um, different. And we met, and uh, he was a lovely bloke. I mean, we became uh, best friends. Well, hold on. You say that. You say that. But, of course, anybody who knows anything about Peter Grant, and we should explain for people who don't, Peter Grant was the legendary manager of the band Led Zeppelin. But more than that, a man who completely changed the way that the music business was, not just in the UK, but also in the States. Before Peter Grant, 
if British bands went to the States, and I've, I know this because I know the guys from Herman's Hermits who had a lot of success in America, but still never made any money there because if you went there, the bands got ripped That's off. Right. It was 90% of the money at the gate went to the promoter, 10% to the band, yep. if they got that. Peter Grant changed yeah. all that. After Peter Grant and Richard Coles, who was Led Zeppelin's legendary tour manager, both of them big, big, tough guys, went over there, put the fear of God in the Americans um, through, with, with sort of all sorts of stories about Peter Grant holding people out of windows. That might have been Don Arden, who was a Mancunian. Peter Grant threatening to rough up or indeed roughing up these guys because they said, oh, we don't know where the money is or you can't... He just basically changed the whole business. And all of those guys, all of those British rock bands that became big in the States owe a huge debt to Peter Grant because he changed it from 90% for the promoter, 10% to the band, to 90% for the band, 10% the promoter. Without Peter Grant, all those guys now, all those rock grandees, the, uh, the, you know, they wouldn't be living like that. They'd be like Herman's Hermits who got completely ripped off. He changed yeah. the business forever. No, you're exactly right. And In fact, they wanted the Zeppelin to go to America, and it was Peter who said, well, uh, we take 90, you take 10. Uh, if not, you know where you can shove it. And, and uh, you're right, uh, the, the, the rock world owes that, to, to that man. And when you see he was pictures... He a different character to, to, to um, Don Arden, by the way. Uh, I mean, Peter, underneath it all, was a real sweetie. Uh, my daughters absolutely loved him. Yeah, but look, um, at, when you see pictures of the band and you see Peter Grant there, and I've, yeah. met, I've met Jimmy Page and I've met... Uh, I haven't met Robert Plant. Uh, my wife, my nice partner's... My partner's, my partner's met him, which is a bit annoying, but, but I haven't, but... Peter Grant was a giant of a man, a huge guy. He was. Um, and, uh, I mean, Peter came up the hard way. And, you know, he'd been a professional wrestler and stuff, so he wasn't a bloke you'd physically challenge. Um, and, and, but he was very, very clever. I mean, it, it's, it's not that well known that he was incredibly well-read. He was an expert on Lalique, obviously old cars. He knew his stuff. He was... He was he was an exceptionally intelligent man. He, you know, the, the band didn't do that well, and, and other bands like Bad Company, uh, because uh, the, the reason they did well is they had a, a brilliant manager who was a one-off and, mm. and who represented the band, first, foremost, and in between. You know, he was looking after his, his band. And so how and, did a man who, when you see him in photographs with other people, dwarfs everybody else in the, in the picture, how on earth did he insert himself into a 9-11? <laughs> oh, his turbo, that black turbo, that was a nice car. I remember that. I, I, I've forgotten all about it. Um, uh, slowly. <laughs> I once did a piece on the TV about people who were differently sized to the average population because mm. I'd seen something about, I wondered how the car companies worked out how far a car seat should move backwards and forwards and up and down. And they they had a statistic which was universal, which was what percentage of the European population fitted into this size category, and then you'd move the seat backward and forward accordingly. And I ended up with um, a Mr Universe who drove, believe it or not, an Austin Metro, um, and Britain's second tallest man who was had a 
he was, his father was a celebrity tailor here in Manchester, Jack Crean, who made clothes for the Hollies and Georgie Best and all that sort of stuff. And Richard was seven foot five, and he drove a Renault five from the back seat. He drove it from the back. When you when we pulled alongside him, you saw him in the rear window of the car. There was nothing in the front. <laughs> there was nothing in the front. His arms oh, are so long. He just just looked yeah. like that. He had a Renault five. So he had a. This is where the Germans think better than, than the English manufacturers. I mean, look at the smart car. I, I've got a little Brabus Smart in, in England, yeah. which apart from going like the proverbial off a shovel, is, it, it's a brilliant design because the design brief was that it could take two six-foot-five large men uh, and six crates of beer in the, in the right. boot. How <laughs> very German. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's sensible, isn't it? And and, and, and you park the bloody thing anywhere. It's uh, it's just a great design. When you look back at all those cars, of the road cars, which is the one that you you wish you still have, or do you indeed still have it? No, I uh, the one oh, which would I have kept? I would have kept the the three hundred SL Mercedes. Oh, um, uh, not the Gullwing. The Gullwing was horrible. To, it was too bloody hot to drive because you you could only slide a little window halfway forwards. It was like driving a sauna bath. Mm. But the convertible was a lovely, lovely car. Of all the old... Well, actually, of all the convertibles I've had, all the sports cars I've had, that was the best. And do you... With the sort of motoring career that you've had and the, the amount of variety and the sort of all the interesting cars and exotic cars and fast cars do you and I, I've, I love asking people this question do you ever wake up one morning and just think I'm done with cars I, I that's it does that ever happen or do you still think you know what I'd really like I'd really like a Fassel Vega or I'd really like a Nissan 240 or I'd really like a Dino, does, does that, do you still have that, even after all these decades of owning all these interesting cars? Well, the answer is no. And partly because, I mean, the three you've just mentioned, I've owned them all. But, <laughs> That's weird. Um, I just pull three cars out, out, out of the ether and you go, yeah, I've had all them. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'll tell you what, what changed my thinking, uh, uh, apart from my age. And, and I still think, oh, you know, I'd like to have one of them. And I think, that in a way, I'm lucky. That's because um, in the last two years, I've had 127 stitches in my right foot, which certainly stops you pressing the accelerator too hard. And yeah. um, uh, I had a good tip many years ago from Michael Schumacher, which is left foot braking, which I do. And you could only left foot brake in an automatic without having an accident, of course. And... Uh, uh, so I'm kind of cured of the the need to think, oh, I've got to have that car. Um, the other thing is I'm married to a very down-to-earth Glaswegian lady, and I believe it's a lot more expensive getting divorced than buying some of the cars I might lust after. <laughs> well, that's a great answer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great to talk to you. And you must you must come back on because I need you to tell me what it was like to actually own a Fassel Vega. <laughs> OK, another time. 
That's it for Steve's Speech Up. Hope you're enjoying these episodes, which we're mainly doing on the phone. Uh, we'll get back to getting people into the studio fairly soon, I hope. Uh, please do recommend the show to your friends. Tell them about it. And uh, we'll see you next week. 